Hi folks, Andy the Taxman here. Before we get into today's program, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to Grappling with Canada on any podcasting platform of your choice. This episode contains discussions of drug abuse, sexual abuse, and the sexual abuse of children. Listener discretion is advised. Bob Sweetan, or a piece of shit. Please I can sugarcoat it for all of his uh, relatives out there in the hinterlands. But I, I found him to be uh, insufferable. He's not a good guy. And, you know, he had, uh, uh, he had these proclivities to uh, young, uh, had very little character. But he was a very good heel. I can't, I gotta give the devil his due. He was a piece of shit as a human being. Abused referees. He abused rookie talents. So uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't care for him, obviously. But I'm not gonna disrespect his in ring work. He was a good heel. He just wasn't a good person out of the ring. I'm your host, Andy the Taxman, and this is Grappling with Canada. Hello folks, and welcome to Season 3 of Grappling with Canada. Sports Washing. It's been a big topic of discussion, especially with the events surrounding the FIFA event in Qatar. It's been on the tip of a lot of people's tongues, especially overseas, when you consider what's happening with football clubs over there, what happens with, or what happens when, dirty money infiltrates sport. Sports washing, for those who are not familiar, is a term used to describe the practice of individuals, groups, corporations, or governments using sports to improve reputations tarnished by wrongdoing, which is, in a sense, a form of propaganda. But what happens when sports washing is not just limited to major corporations, major sporting events? What happens when a form of sports washing is used to obfuscate the legacy of people in sport? Today we will be looking into the very complicated story of bruiser Bob Sweetan. Why do I talk about sports washing? Simply put, professional wrestling has this weird dichotomy. There are fans who will celebrate the wrestler and not talk about the person. Case in point would be an individual like Chris Benoit, an amazing in-ring talent, but we cannot overlook the fact that he murdered in cold blood his wife and his son. There are many individuals like this, perhaps not to that extent, but who exist in the history, in the pantheon of professional wrestling, whose in-ring work is celebrated and whose personal life is not discussed. 
to me, in order to tell a fulsome story about an individual, you need to bring all of the facets of that person together. That's what we're going to do today. Not just to discuss the career of Bruiser Bob Sweetan, but to also discuss the impact that it had on individuals in his life who were sucked into his orbit and who had to pick up the pieces and move their lives forward. One of which you're really going to hear about today and somebody who their story alone is reason enough for me to do this program tonight. Now, I have to be honest. I have had an extremely difficult time with this particular episode because there is subject matter in here, specifically sexual abuse of a child, that I cannot do my usual job on these programs of providing an unbiased view of a person's background and of a person's situation. There are few lines that uh, that I really have an issue with. And uh, to say that uh, child abuse is one of them would be would be an understatement. So I'm going to do my very best today to provide the facts, leave the conjecture out of it, leave my personal feelings about the individual in question, Bruiser Bob Sweetan, out of it, and provide you with a proper contextualized story of who Bob Sweetan was, what he meant in the ring, and who he was outside of the ring. And I will allow you then to form, hopefully, your own opinions. The reality is, we have a big problem in professional wrestling with unsavory characters skating by, skating through life based on what they can do in the ring. In my opinion, that is, that is not an excuse. That is not a reason to let somebody slide. So, with all that being said, we are going to be exploring today the life and career of Bruiser Bob Sweetan. In order for me to do this, I have joining me on the program today, and you're going to hear him in a little bit, a good friend of the show, Greg Oliver, who has an interesting article and a fascinating story regarding that article on slamwrestling.net that we'll be uh, heavily referencing on this program today. The reality is, most of the articles that you read regarding Bob Sweetan online are essentially derivatives of what Greg Oliver has written, up to and including the obituary on the Wrestling Observer News site. Unfortunately, many of these sites don't give proper credit to Greg for uh, his incredible work, not only of investigating, researching, and properly pursuing all leads in regards to the article, but how he presented it, and how long it took him to present it. We are going to get into that all 
a little bit later. But first, as I usually do, we will provide some uh, archival audio because, once again, I need to put my personal feelings aside and present the story of bruiser Bob Sweeten in the proper context. So I'm going to play you some classic uh, bruiser Bob Sweeten audio, and on the other side, let's dig into the man. Bob Sweetan. Our next match in just a moment here on Southwest Championship Wrestling, but it's my pleasure to have with me the once again Southwest Heavyweight Champion. And Bob, congratulations. I know you dropped the man on his head and you got your belt back. You know, Steve, I told Adrian Adonis and I told all the good fans out there that I was going to get him and I was going to get my belt back because as far as I was concerned, he stole it from me. That's exactly what I did. What even made it sweeter... I used my favorite move to put Mr. Adonis down for a one, two, three. Now the man is the world's champion. He's an undisputed world's heavyweight champion. So I feel that with the win over him to get my title back puts me right in the driver's seat, puts me right in that number one spot to get a shot at Adonis. Now, Adonis, I listened to you a little earlier up here talking and telling the people how good you are and how great you are. I'm going to give the devil his due. Yes, you are good. A man has to be good in order to survive in a sport of professional wrestling. And a man has to be especially good in order to be a champion. And you are the undisputed world's heavyweight champion, so that means that you are good. Because you went through a lot of good men in that tournament. But I feel deep down inside, Adonis, that there's nobody in this sport better than I. And the way I feel about it, anybody can be beaten on any given night. So now you're the world's champion. That puts you right at the top of the mountain, way up there above everybody else. And that means that there's a lot of good men in the sport of professional wrestling that are after you, that have their sights set on you. Adonis, you're going to feel pressure like you've never felt pressure in your life. Because every man that puts on a pair of wrestling shoes, a pair of wrestling tights is going to be gunning for you. And sooner or later, somewhere along the line, I'm going to get my hands on you. I'm going to get a title shot. And then we're going to find out exactly how good you are. You've only done the first step. You've won the title. Now the big part that's coming, the heavy part, that's really going to put the pressure on you is for you to try to keep that title. And like I said before, with all the good men in the sport of professional wrestling after you, it's going to be hard to keep that title. Adonis, keep looking over your shoulder. Keep watching out for Mr. Piledriver because I'm coming with all my guns loaded. And I'm going to corner you, Adonis. I beat you once for a title. I can't see the reason why I can't do it again. With the fans of Texas and all over the world behind me, that gives a man an extra, a little extra boost, makes you go a little bit harder. And Adonis, when I step in that ring with you, I can guarantee you one thing, I'm going to go as hard as possible because I'd like a mate for this belt. And that belt that you have would look very good around my waist. Thank you very much, Thank Bob you Sweet. Good luck to you. All right, there you have the Southwest Heavyweight Champion, Bob Sweetan. Let's go to the ring. The majority of the information provided in today's episode is coming directly from the SlamWrestling.net article, Bruiser Bob Sweeten Leaves a Complicated Legacy, by Greg Oliver. Now there's a very important reason for this. This article, by Greg Oliver, includes the only interview ever submitted by a professional wrestling journalist with Bruiser Bob Sweeten. Essentially, everything else that you read out there 
about Bruiser Bob Sweet 10 on any one of these other aggregate wrestling sites is essentially a derivative of the work that Greg Oliver has done in this specific article. Of note, there is one very important piece to this that continually gets overlooked, and we're going to be getting into that later on in the program tonight. You're also going to be hearing from Greg Oliver as he further expands on certain aspects of the Bob Sweetan story. Once again, if you look in the show notes of today's episode, you will find a link to the Bruiser Bob Sweetan Leaves a Complicated Legacy story. You will also know that this article was recorded, written, completed in 2006. It was not released until the death of Bruiser Bob Sweetan in 2017, almost nine years later. There are very important reasons for that, and Greg is along for the ride to discuss that later on in the program. But I wanted everybody to understand where you can find this article, how long it was sat on, and at the end of this episode, you're going to understand why those decisions were made. Robert Byer was born July 4th, 1940, on a farm near Good Soil, Saskatchewan, which is about four hours north of Saskatoon. He'd parlay his 5'10 thick frame into a spot on the Toronto Argonauts, although he was not listed on any game reports, and declined to discuss it further during his interview with Greg Oliver. It's also unclear when he changed his last name from Byer, but he did change it to Carson, which will come up later on in the article as we proceed. Robert Carson then headed back west, where he ended up in Calgary. A quote from the article on SlamWrestling.net, written by Greg Oliver. Quote, I just got on the road and decided I had to see everything, and started traveling. Now, Bob Carson, which would later become Bob Sweeten, had one of the more interesting starts in professional wrestling. To further expand on this aspect... Let's hear from the author of this article, SlamWrestling.net's own, Greg Oliver. So, the craziest story for getting involved in pro wrestling, I, I mean, Sweet Hands has to be up there. He said he was a big guy, he, you know, he'd, he'd played football, and he said he was just home at Calgary, and, and somebody knocked on his door. And this is, you know, a lost art for today's world, where you can get whatever you want the next moment from Amazon. But there was a pot and, pails, pot and pan salesman coming to his door. And his name was Gerd Topsnick, and, and he was a wrestler, one of those part-time guys, the homesteaders that, you know, filled out the stampede cards. And, uh, you know, Bob chatted him up and said, hey, I'll be happy to buy some pots and some pans if you hook me up to uh, learn to be a pro wrestler. And that led to his introduction to Stu Hart. And we all know the Stu Hart stories. He, he was a good trainer. But it wasn't easy. He really made those guys work both in the basement and in whatever ring they had set up. But I don't think anybody will ever question Bob Sweetan for his legitimacy as a wrestler. He looked the part. He acted the part. He portrayed a tough guy. And, you know, he wasn't doing moonsaults. Let's put it that way. But uh, you knew enough to be intimidated by him. And I, I think that helped sell some tickets over the years. 
Conventional wisdom would dictate that during the off-seasons of the Calgary Stampede Wrestling Territory, that Canadian wrestlers would go down to the States to uh, find a lot of their work. But that's not necessarily the case. Many of the Calgary Stampede era wrestlers during the Calgary off-season would actually go out to the Maritimes. The idea here being that when Calgary was in their off-season, the Maritimes were on their on-season and vice versa. I had Greg Oliver expand a little bit more on the relationship between the Calgary wrestling scene and the maritime wrestling scene and how it related to Bob Sweetan. Going from Stampede to the Maritimes, it was pretty common because, you know, Stampede would run all through the winter and they'd, they'd calm down a little bit over the summer. They'd obviously run their um, big Stampede show at the Calgary Stampede, things like that. But the Maritimes was a summer tour. And so the guys loved to go out there because it was easy trips. They really weren't that far apart. You got to, you know, do a little bit of fishing. You certainly got to eat your seafood. You really had a lot more downtime. And it was like a little bit vacation going out there. So I, it was pretty normal for a lot of the guys from Stampede to end up out in the Maritimes. And he worked for Emile Dupre out there. And then he kept going back and worked for um, the Cormiers and Al Zinc when they were promoting out there. Um, you know, he was just a guy that, you know, made sense out there. And I think it he fit that that lifestyle out there on the East Coast that, you know, they really respect those guys that were really tough. And he made a great foil for all the Cormiers, especially because he was such a fireplug kind of a guy. He wasn't that tall, but he was really built stocky. Now, from the article, Greg would alliterate that the road really became Sweet Ten's home as he worked promotions in Oregon, Arizona, Kansas City, Indiana, and Oklahoma, as well as San Antonio, Texas, in addition to the territories that he was working here in Canada. Sweetan would save himself, quote, I was a tight worker. Everything was close. I don't think that there was anything I ever did that didn't look real. Maybe at the beginning when I didn't know what I was doing, but I always prided myself on my hard work. I always got the saying, hey, you're too small, you're too small for this, you're too small for that. I just had to prove them wrong. That was my motivation. To expand a little bit more on the impact of Bob Sweetan in the territories, here's Greg Oliver. Well, I, I think from a perspective, when you look back on the career of Bob Sweetan, you're going to associate him most with Texas, especially San Antonio because he was one of the guys working for Joe Blanchard when Southwest Championship Wrestling got on the USA Network. And so he had national exposure, and and that is a huge difference maker right there. Uh, of course, we all know the USA Network eventually went with WWF, but at the time, Southwest Championship Wrestling, those guys, your Scott Casey's, your Bob Sweetans, your Tully Blanchard's, they were, they were big names. And so as much as he may have influenced somebody locally, like a Shawn Michaels, uh, he also had a bit of an influence just portraying what a villain or a uh, celebrated good guy, in the sense that he was a bad guy that was around so long that the fans started to like him. Uh, you know, he was great national exposure there, and we can't really rule that out as being part of his legacy.
Now, during Bob Sweetan's time in America, this seems to be when his, we'll say, proclivities uh, start to manifest themselves. To expand a little bit on this, I'm going to once again throw it to Greg Oliver. And you're also going to hear a little bit about Grizzly Smith. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, Grizzly Smith is probably one of the most depraved individuals to ever enter the professional wrestling world, we'll say. I'm not going to litigate everything that he did in professional wrestling, nor am I here to litigate what he um, did outside of the ring, including countless uh, sexual assaults of children, including uh, his own children. Uh, If you are looking for more information on Grizzly Smith, there is a lot of resources out there, but this is a name that's unfortunately going to keep coming up in the context of this conversation. And there may be a line to be drawn between Grizzly Smith and what Bob Sweetan would eventually uh, end up doing. However, that is part of the story, and I wanted to uh, illuminate on that a little bit before we move forward. So here, once again, is Greg Oliver to expand on the start of the seeming proclivities of Bruiser Bob Sweeten and uh, a little bit of an introduction to Grizzly Smith. Well, I'm not even sure proclivities is the right word. I mean, they all... They didn't, sorry, they didn't all goof around in the wives, but they all screwed around to some degree, whether it was just being goofy, you know, having a few drinks or obviously the screwing around. But the proclivity and, and assaulting his daughter um, is a wholly different thing. And I think that's a lot of the reason he was ostracized from the business, that a lot of people didn't want to stay in touch with him because, you know, that's just negative energy. You don't need it in your life. And it's easy to get rid of a guy like that, especially after he'd been deported and and sent back to Canada after his three strikes in the U.S. It is a little bit interesting, I guess, that, you know, you look at somebody like Grizzly Smith, who look what he got away with for decades, right? And then in that same territory around that same time is, is Bob Sweetan. Now, I'm not saying that the two are in any way, shape or form the same type of individual but it's it's uh scary to think about certainly well it's yeah it's creepy you know do they sit around and compare notes about molesting their daughters i don't know um the timelines probably don't work to say that but yeah there's a lot of that creepiness that goes into pro wrestling and you hear it from various people over the years it's like i was told never to be in a room alone with grizzly smith or I'm sure there were similar things said about Bob Sweetan. It's like, don't trust him. Uh, in the story that I wrote, uh, you know, Ed Waskowski, who was Colonel De Beers, talks about him being a locker room thief. And again, that was another common theme. You hear that about a few guys, and it's really hard to prove. But, uh, I mean, I've heard that about Sweetan and, and Dick Steinborn and a few different guys that just weren't really trusted on the same level as um, some of the other guys. And that's, again, that that leads into the the nomadic lifestyle of of the wrestlers where it's like, I may not see this guy again for two months so I can screw him over.
Now, to further expand on the relationship between Sweetan and Grizzly Smith, I'm going to read a quote. This comes from Jim Ross via his Slobberknocker book. Now, this quote contains some distressing material, so uh, please be advised while listening to this portion, but we do need to add context to the Bob Sweetan story. So again, this comes from Jim Ross's Slobberknocker. The McGuire's opponents were Siegfried Stanky and Bob Sweetan. Stanky was portraying an evil German stereotype, which had been a powerful role for a heel in the early 1950s and 1960s. In real life, this sneering, quote, Nazi villain was native Texan Bill Lehman, an all-around good guy and American football player from Texas Lutheran. How Bill tolerated his partner, I'll never know, because Bob Sweeten, as I knew well by now, was mo- one of the most cantankerous human beings I had ever encountered. Since our card games, him taking liberties with me in the ring, and his resulting run-in with Hodge, which I will get into later in the program, Sweeten had gotten even more miserable in the few years since I had last seen him. I don't know whether I was happy or not to find out that his bullying was just, wasn't just was just limited to me, not by any stretch. Sweetan also took advantage of job guys, wrestlers just passing through, or locals, the guys who were least likely to say anything that he could make waves for as a top heel. He also took liberties with the McGuire twins. He took advantage of their ex- lack of experience in the ring and just beat the S out of them. I knew by now that wrestling was a tough physical sport but if you're going in with the intent of hurting your opponent you're in the wrong field I was the referee and saw firsthand how brutal the shots were I tried to intervene but Sweetan was not exactly of mind to heed my feeble warnings so he took his time at making himself look like the baddest guy around when it came to the finish he would tag his partner Stanky to get pinned with a splash by one of the huge twins Lehman didn't mind doing the job, both because he knew he wasn't going to be back in the same little town for a while, and because he was a professional. Sweetan, on the other hand, was a piece of feces. He operated how he wanted to because he enjoyed the protection of Grizzly Smith, Leroy's right-hand man. Grizz and Sweetan were friendly. They had a few things in common, including an interest in very young females. Leroy had even told me that he had had to stop running Texarana as part of a deal to allegedly get Grizz out of a charge involving a young girl there. And since part of Grizzly's job was to make the house shows and report back to the office, he was always in close enough contact with minors for something bad to happen. Parents would drop their kids off at shows, and because we hit the same towns weekly, it was easy for young ladies to figure out what restaurants the guys visited and what hotels they occupied. In that environment, someone with a perversion could easily become a predator. I learned a lot from Leroy and Watts, but I'll never understand why they were willing to keep Grizz on. I understood why he had appeal as a wrestler. There weren't a lot of six foot ten guys around, much less ones who understood in-ring psychology, and Grizz knew the business. But there had come a point where the rewards of a good gate were outweighed by a person's proclivities. I wanted to ask... Leroy, you still got this man on payroll after all. Why do you keep using him? But I didn't. I didn't feel like it was my place. I still remember the first time I became acutely aware of Sweetan's part in it, 
and that memory still makes me nauseous. We were waiting to do some interviews at the local station after a show at Fort Smith, Arkansas one night, and one of the sponsors was there with his wife and little girl, who was maybe 12, to meet the wrestlers. Sweet Ten muttered to me, I could make her purr like a kitten. I leaned towards Sweet Ten, mortified that the sponsor might overhear this discussion, and said quietly, Well, that might not make her husband too happy. He said with a smile, I'm not talking about the mother. Sweet Ten liked to take advantage of every chance he got, even if it was a pair of 600-pound wrestlers. Now, that would not be the only negative comment made towards Bob Sweeten, some of which we're going to get into later on in the story, but I felt it necessary at this point in the story to really start laying the groundwork for the entire contextualized um, story of Bob Sweeten to become evident. Because what happened at the end of the story, the groundwork is laid in his formative years. And there are people, unfortunately, Grizzly Smith being one of them, who fostered that environment and allowed it to fester. And unfortunately, for the people involved in Bob Sweeten's orbit, they were sucked into it and through no fault of their own. It is interesting, too, that the article or the interview that Greg Oliver had with Bob Sweeten would kind of alternate between what happened in the ring, what happened outside of the ring. And I think that that's a fair representation because when we're talking about somebody with a checkered past such as Bob Sweeten, we need to keep all of these facets uh, in proper context. Now, one person who had some good things to say about Bob Sweeten was Cowboy Dan Crawford, who would speak about uh, Bob Sweeten during his time in Oklahoma. Quote, He and I worked on top there. We changed the belt back and forth. I found him to be a great worker, said Crawford. I had a lot of great matches with the guy. He was a pleasure to work with, but who knows what goes on outside the ring. Another regular opponent was Leo Burke and he considered Sweeten's strengths and weaknesses. Quote, He was a good follower. If you could lead him, he could follow you like a dancing partner. But I've had better heels, but he was definitely a good one. He was kind of lazy sometimes. That would be his worst knock. He was easy to work with. Now, one of the most memorable tag teams that Bob Sweeten formed was one with Fred Prosser. Now, Fred Prosser might be an episode in itself uh just how he ended up passing away which is kind of a crazy story as the aspects of his death are very much in question uh even after the rcmp conducted a very extensive um investigation regarding it now it is interesting to note that bob sweeten would form a few different tag teams throughout the years with multiple different partners it is interesting that regardless of how many tag teams he was partnered with, isolation seems to be something that he continually put himself in on the road. To further expand upon his tag team with Prosser, as well as isolation on the road, once again, Greg Oliver. There's a lot of 
things that happen in pro wrestling where somebody gets paired with somebody and you don't always know why. And in the case of uh, Freddie Prosser, it was just the idea that, uh, you know, maybe the Sweet Hand should should try it uh, as, as a tag team. And they didn't know each other at all. And so when Bob Carson met um, Freddie Prosser, they became a tag team. Uh, and so that was Freddie Sweet Hand and Bob Sweet Hand. And, you know, they, they were a successful team, just but they were also really similar. Like they weren't, you know, big, tall guys. They could just sort of be bruisers, like guys you meet down at the bar. And it would come in and, and fight. And so in Stampede, they obviously excelled as a tag team. But they also did some stuff out east where Freddie Prosser was actually from out in the Maritimes. And, you know, it's just one of those forgotten kind of tag teams that that had a, a number of years, good runs. They did a little bit in the U.S. where they, they went as the Cox brothers instead of the Sweet Hands. I'm not exactly sure why. But, I mean, we did talk about that a little bit in the article. It's just K.O. Cox was a reference to an old old-time wrestler. And that's how, you know, Bob Sweetan used that for a little bit. And then uh, they had Freddie as uh, as another Cox brother. See, it's interesting for a guy like Sweetan to be in so many tag teams. You have them, you know, some of his uh, partners listed here, you know, Mike George, Terry Gibbs, et cetera, that he would go on to tell that uh, line in the interview about, you know, being isolated constantly. How, how do you how do you. Um, square those things together that he's in a tag team he's supposed to be working with these guys night in night out but at the same time he's constantly kind of off doing his own thing well i don't think that's completely unnatural in the wrestling business the if, yes it's easier and cheaper to travel with other guys um to heal the room and have a few guys in the hotels or or share the cost of trans um, but it also lends itself to yourself doing it on your own and so obviously he was quite happy with that. And and there's no rule that says you have to get along with your tag team partner outside the ring, right? You just have to be able to perform together. And from all I could tell, he was a good tag team partner when he finally got in the ring. It's just, it is interesting that that kind of plays into, I suppose, why not many people in the business kept track of him because he certainly didn't go out of his way to, or seemingly at least, go out of his way to, uh, to really make friends in the business. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. He didn't go out of the way. That's a good way to put it. Um, he didn't really stay in touch. And that's on him and that's on other people. Obviously, they could have probably stayed in touch, but they made their choices and he made his. And, you know, we're here second guessing, talking about this, you know, years later. Again, the technology's changed, right? I mean, it's pretty simple for guys to text each other now or to you know, give a quick call from wherever they are. But, you know, for the kids listening today, you know, long distance used to matter. You know, you have to figure out when the best times were to call and, uh, you know, save money. You'd be calling after seven on a Sunday or whatever it was. So, yeah, I mean, the elements of staying in touch are different today than they were then. Now, it is interesting to note that regardless of Bob Sweetent outside of the ring, inside of the ring, he actually ended up becoming quite the well-regarded and well-respected wrestler in the fans' eyes. To explain a little bit about this, once again, I'm going to be joined by Greg Oliver in just a minute, as well as Greg will also expand on the famous pile driver, the finishing maneuver that Bob Sweeten really uh, trademarked his, his matches with. But before we get into that, I wanted to play a little bit of classic wrestling audio. Now, this is from a match between 
Bob Sweetan, and Jerry the King Lawler. And I want you to pay attention to the sounds of the crowd throughout the finish of the match. Once again, we need to be able to properly contextualize the story of Bob Sweetan, the wrestler, Bob Sweetan, the man. Although they are the same thing, I do need to present uh, the wrestling side and what the fans thought of him in the ring at the time that he was one of the big stars in America in terms of professional wrestling. So once again, I'm going to play some classic uh, wrestling audio. And on the other side, we're going to hear once again from Greg Oliver as he expands on just how Bob Sweetan ended up becoming a good guy in the fans' eyes and then expanding further upon Bob Sweetan's use of his most famous move and one that is still talked about by fans today, the pile driver. Please enjoy. Jerry Lawler, high in air, he goes and drops a knee across the chest of Bob Sweetan. Lawler grabbing the hair, throws a punch that was very close to the throat. Lawler, proud of himself now. Let's see if the king goes for the pile driver. There he goes. Oh, and Sweet Dan flips him off. The king, Jerry Lawler, made his first move for the pile driver, and Bob Sweet Dan just flipped him right over his back. Sweet Dan now with a punch. Bob Sweet Dan. Going after Jerry Lawler in a big boot there. Puts Lawler on the mat. An elbow smash from Sweet Dan. He's got him down for a count of two. Oh, that was close. Sweet Dan taking Lawler. Lays him on the ropes. Whips him across the ring. Cuts him back with that elbow. And down goes Jerry Lawler. Another elbow smash by Sweet Dan. Lawler kicks out. Sweet Dan. Grabs the hair, brings the king, Jerry Lawler up. Oh, what an uppercut that was, and that sent Lawler back to the mat. Sweet Dan reaching in, has him up for a beautiful back suplex. Oh, and he went right into the ropes. The king, Jerry Lawler, is covered up by Sweet Dan. Here's the count. It is up. A leg over that bottom rope. I don't believe it was a three count as Lawler had the leg over the bottom rope. Two count. I thought the referee gave him three, but Lawler did have the leg over the bottom rope. There's another back suplex. Sweet Dan trying to keep him from rolling around. He's got him covered up again, and this time it's three. This time I believe it was three. Lawler has got a leg over that bottom rope. Let's see if the referee is going to... Oh, no. I don't believe he's going to award the match to Sweet Dan. He isn't. Now, there's no doubt about that from my position here at the arena. It looked like that leg went over the bottom rope after the three count. Now, Lawler gets a knee up in there. He's got Sweet Dan down. Lawler using the rope for leverage. He got the three count. Jerry Lawler 
using the rope for leverage, has got the three count on Sweetan. Now Sweetan comes back at him for the foul driver. He drops him on his head. Oh, this crowd is going crazy. Listen to this crowd. They want Sweetan to do it again. Sweetan is up on that middle rope. Lawler is down, suffering from the pain that has been brought to him by that power driver by Bob Sweetan, and Sweetan is leaving the ring. He lost the match, but he did get to put the power driver on the King Jerry Lawler. Lawler was the winner of the match. It looked like Sweetan had won, but the referee decided that. In, in our book, um, Heroes and Icons, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame Heroes and Icons, we had to try to figure out the idea of anti-heroes because there's guys that are villains and really good villains, but through whatever process, they don't change their style in the ring at all, but they become good guys. The fans buy into them. They start really supporting them. It often has a lot to do with being in the same town for a long time or homesteading as the term is used. And eventually they just sort of organically become good guys. And and that certainly happened to Sweetan in a couple of places, um, San Antonio for one. It's just that, you know, they fit in with that style. They, and the fans want to support them. And that's, um, it just happens. And that's one of the joys of pro wrestling when, when it isn't overscripted, when you listen to the fans a little bit. And so just go along for the ride. It, it's part of the magic of it. And, and Sweetan rode that. I, I'm not sure he was your the world's greatest babyface by any means, and and no doubt it was probably hard trying to figure out who he's going to go against. But you know it worked in in short stints in various places. Now from the article, and you can tell by the tone of it that his tone really changes when he starts talking about the the pile driver and that aspect of it. Can you maybe expand a little bit on that portion of the conversation they had with him? It's funny when I look back in my memories of Bob Sweetan, it's all from the wrestling magazines because I never saw him work, certainly not in person. I, I know I've seen him a few times on on videos or uh, on streaming, but you know it was all about the pile driver. That was certainly what they put over in the magazines, Mister Pile Driver. And yeah, that's the one time when I was talking to him that he really lit up. He you know really understood the art to the pile driver um, would bragged about how he never hurt anybody and how he could do it you know on the concrete or on tables or in the ring or off the rope and he always managed to protect the guy now again partly that might be his body shape right he was a little bit bottom heavy and not a real tall guy and strong uh, so obviously he could protect the guys in his in his strong legs as well i i just love it though when those guys do perk up a little bit um that's one of the things that stands out from my interview with him is, yeah, he got all excited talking about pile drivers. And and it, we'd always sort of mused a little bit, Steve Johnson and I, that maybe there's a pro wrestling hall of fame, the moves where you talk about those moves. I don't think the book's ever going to happen, but I remember that was one of the ones where it clicks in your head. It's like, Oh, this would be really good talking about the pile driver, but that's the nature of these two, right? You, you get all kinds of things that you never actually use. Uh, when you interview somebody, um, I was looking through my notes before we talked and just, I mean, the number of different people he, he talked about for me or about, right, that he'd worked with. Like, that's important to me, too, because a lot of these guys, it may not work into his obituary, but, I mean, if he's talking to me about Gil Hayes or 
Bob Brown or, or DiBiase, who we worked with a ton, you know, they're just, they're just additions there, right? And I end up using it down the road. It, it, part of my job as a journalist is to just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. It doesn't mean you ever, ever use this stuff. Now, I want to further expand on the relationship between Bob Sweeten and the wrestling fans. This is once again directly from the SlamWrestling.net article on Bruiser Bob Sweeten by Greg Oliver. As for the fans, it's fair to say that they never knew what they were going to get from Sweeten. Gene Petit, who was later known as Cousin Luke in the WWF, knew Sweeten in Louisiana. Quote, Bob was a heel, babyface, heel, babyface. The people still loved him no matter what he did. If they hated him because he was a heel, they'd cause riots. Then he turned babyface and they liked him because he was part of that territory and he belonged to those people, whether he was a good guy or a bad guy. If they brought a good guy in that the people didn't know and Bob was a heel, they might not care too much for that good guy. He might have been a bad guy, but he was their bad guy. A young Shawn Michaels saw the same thing when Sweet Tan worked in San Antonio, Texas. Quote, One of our favorites was a guy named Bruiser Bob Sweeten. He was the first wrestler to come in as a bad guy, act like a bad guy, and be turned good by the fans, wrote Michaels in his autobiography. Quote, He came out to bang your head by Quiet Riot and would finish his opponents off with the pile driver. That got him over like a million bucks and the fans couldn't help but cheer for him. As you just heard previously, Greg had gone into great detail about the pile driver aspect of Bob Sweetem, but I want you to hear about that in Bob's own words. Once again, from the article. Calm for most of the phone interview, Sweetan comes alive talking about his skills with the devastating move. Quote, I've seen different guys use the pile driver. I don't give a F how many guys try it, they don't do it the same way I did it, he said. It looked like it was dead on, every time I hit it. I didn't give an F, you could go out there with the camera right down there on the mat, right between my legs, you would still swore the man got jacked. Things I did, I tried to do them as solid as possible, as believable as possible. Most of the time, even ask the guys I worked with, I was stiff. I never hurt anybody in all the years I used it, I never hurt anybody. I did pile drivers on the apron onto the concrete floor. I did pile drivers 4 feet through a table onto the cement floor. Guys weighing 260, 280, 300, 350, I never hurt one of them. Although the fans had a love and hate relationship with Bob depending on what he was in the ring. Many of the wrestlers in the back were not fans of Bob Sweeten. Jim Ross, once again, had a quote in this article that I'm going to read. Quote, Bruiser Bob Sweeten, not the nicest guy I ever met in the biz. I followed Sweeten back to the locker room through very angry fans while Grizz was laying in the ring bleeding profusely. This was in Lake Charles, Louisiana. The rule of thumb was always leave with the villains because that were the cops, that's where the cops would be. They were right there all along, and they did all they could to prevent me from getting punched repeatedly while navigating my way through many irate, drunken alpha males who wanted to kill Sweet Temp for what he did to their beloved hero, and for me for allowing their heinous actions to occur. Sweet Temp will recall another ride in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where the fans started throwing chairs into the ring. From Bob Sweet Temp, quote, Finally, I said, okay, this is it. Nobody came out of the dressing room to help my ass. 
I jumped out of the ring and went running back to the dressing room. They locked the effing door and I couldn't get in. I had to get up on the stage and go down another way to the effing dressing room. Someone else who didn't look favorably on Bob Sweeten was Ed Wiskowski. Quote, I wasn't a fan of his, from being a locker room thief to just among other things, just an asshole. Whenever I was around him, I always locked my stuff up, made sure that I didn't have anything that I couldn't afford to lose in the dressing room. Another one who was not a fan was Jim Duggan. Quote, just a mean guy and a bully. And there is another Jim Ross story that I wanted to uh, cover as well. And you may be wondering to yourself, why are there seemingly so many Jim Ross stories? Well, once again, there are not very many people who have gone on record to talk about Bob Sweeten. There's essentially Bob Sweeten in this article talking about himself, the person who you're going to hear very shortly, the few wrestlers that have made some quotes about him, and then Jim Ross, who, if you're a wrestling fan, you know that he was essentially the voice of wrestling for 25, 30 years. So when he speaks, people listen. And he had a lot to say in regards to Bob Sweetan. Now, this story is of Jim Ross talking about one of his good friends and heroes, Danny Hodge, who Danny Hodge was one of the most legitimate professional wrestlers in history one of the toughest men to ever to ever step inside the squared circle quote Hodge has been bullied as a kid and he wasn't tolerant of such behavior as fate would have it Hodge wrestled Sweet Ten soon after his return Hodge saw my black eye and was filled in by other wrestlers of Sweet Ten's conduct regarding rookies and people that the real life villain could intimidate and bully in the match with the 220 pound Hodge Sweet Ten was humbled, physically gassed, and punished while being made to look far from invincible in his casting as the territory's top antagonist. Ironically, the booking that night called for Hodge to lose, which he did. Now, in this point in the program, I'm sure you're wondering why I would showcase or do an episode, I guess is a proper way to say it, on Bruiser Bob Sweet Ten, because he obviously is not the best person inside or outside of the ring. Well, the reality is there is one important reason why I felt like the Bob Sweeten story uh, needed to be spotlit, and it's because of the woman that you're going to hear in this next uh, series of discussions with Greg Oliver. To me, in the article, there is one star, and that is Rebecca. Rebecca Terrain met her future husband in Kansas City, where he was wrestling in 1969. She'd been raised in Iowa and left after high school. Rebecca was not a wrestling fan, though, and had never been to the matches. Instead, he saw her dancing out at the adult club across from the KC wrestling office, and something clicked between the two of them. They were married in Los Angeles in 1971 and had four children together. Candace was born in 1971, Christopher in 1974, Kathy in 1976, and Carson in 1978. Now, it should be noted that Sweeten does have one other child with another woman. To me, in the article, Rebecca is the star. 
And like I said previously, she is the one, essentially the one reason why I felt like the Bruiser Bob Sweetan story needed to be told, not specifically to platform Bob Sweetan, but to make people understand what this woman went through, how she was able to raise four children and come out on the other side. I spoke in length with Greg Oliver regarding this. Here's what Greg had to say. What was interesting about Rebecca is I went back to her at least two or three times um, to get more. And that's a little bit of fact checking, right? I, I, you dig up, you know, police records or whatever, because all of a sudden she's giving you leads and, you know, dates or, you know, times or, you know, locations. And so you can dig up some of those police records and then you go back and talk to her a little bit about that. I never talked to any of the kids um, which I probably could have. Uh, one of the kids, Christopher, has since passed on, I know for sure. Um, so it's it's a funny business sometimes working with wives, especially the ex-wives, because they often have an axe to grind. And in this case, she had a very legitimate axe to grind. I have no problem with it. But you have to be careful about balance. And she's going to say all the negative stuff. And Bob basically just brushed it off. Well, I went to court, it got divorced. And that's all he really wanted to talk about when you knew there was so much more. So I was going into talking to Bob Suitan with a lot under my belt that I already knew, that he didn't know I knew, which is a great position to be in in a case like that. You, you don't want to go in there and start fishing with a guy who's got a criminal record. You want to have your actual ducks in a row for a good cliche before you talk to him. And so, again, with Rebecca, I'm pretty sure I went back and I talked to her again after talking to Bob and said, you know, he said this, he said that. And, you know, it's just a chance to clarify things. It's like, well, yeah, he did finally call and we talked and, you know, he's talked to some of the kids since those kind of things. It, it humanizes these guys. Right. I mean, we see them as these great, big, exciting pro wrestlers that lives these fabulous lives. But really, they live tough lives. They're away from their families all the time. And, you know, the, the rigors of the road. So yeah, I, I, I'm glad you like the Rebecca part. I'm so glad she's in there and, and her story got told as well. For her, it just it's fascinating because you don't really hear this happen too much in pro wrestling where the family moves with the wrestler. Usually the wrestler and the family are at home and the wrestler is off to whatever. I'm thinking about somebody like Kaniski, for example. Um, it's, it's interesting, uh, that she was so not involved in the business. I don't mean it that way, but was involved in the moving aspect of it. Did she go into mu very much detail about that? I don't remember talking a lot about the moving. I, I don't think it's as rare as you think it is for the guy them to move around a lot, especially when the kids are young. That was pretty common. They, they wrestlers in general would travel with their young kids and it wasn't until the kids were, you know, serious school age. I don't mean kindergarten. I mean, once they're ready to start settling in and they need a, a home base, that's often when they would settle down. Um, so I didn't get all that timeline completely straight. And I'm not sure it's that important where and when they lived and when. Uh, it would be if I was doing a full biography in Bob Sweetan. But who's going to buy it? I'm, you know, about such a terrible human being. <laughs> so. Well, and that's that's the other part of it. We'll expand on that in a little bit. Um, 
just I want to stay on the Rebecca thing for a little bit just because I find her story and her part of this story just so fascinating because she seemingly comes out of nowhere and just kind of gets pulled into the orbit of Bob Sweetan and then unfortunately suffers the consequences of it. Like, I, I'm sure that your discussions with her were pretty one-sided, as you would imagine they would be, but she comes off in the article as being you know, pretty straight with everything. Was that your impression of her as well? It was my impression that, that she was a straight shooter. Uh, you do have that little bit of, and it's unfair, but you have that little bit of bias built in because you know that she was a stripper. Like there's no other way to put it, an adult dancer. So you're, you're immediately thinking, oh, well, she maybe not have been well-educated or tough times or this and that, but that wasn't the case at all. She was really intelligent and really was able to explain her positions um and and talk about you know what happened in the family and and yeah she was emotional a little bit at times but yet i think it was probably cathartic to talk a little bit about some of those things that went on during her life and and you know what a part bob carson was in her life and gave her the all the kids the four kids so yeah I, I, she's a strong woman for sure and i'm glad that comes across in the article One thing that I started this program off by saying is that I have been absolutely unable to separate my personal feelings about Bruiser Bob Sweeten from doing the program. It's clouded me. And I've tried very hard to make it not the focal point of the program tonight. And I wanted to know from Greg Oliver what, how he was able to combat that because I had a very difficult time of doing it. And I can't imagine going into an interview with somebody where you know their checkered past, you have the receipts, you have the ammunition, and it's you and it's them. And how do you go about that interview and then write a subsequent article when the proclivitous nature of this individual is so front and center and so obvious and so harmful. I asked Greg to expand on what that process was like and how he was able to separate himself from his work in regards to this specific situation. I know I'm not alone in the journalism world being able to do a tough job, ask the tough questions and not let it affect you personally. And and that just goes back to even your first days in journalism school when they send you to an inquest or you cover a tough story. Um, you have to be able to shut it down. I was fortunate. I don't want to say fortunate. It maybe isn't the right word. But when I was at the Toronto Sun, I never had to do the pickups, right? I never had to go knock on a door and at somebody whose kid had died and try to get a picture, any of those kind of things. But I knew people that did, and we talked about it. I knew the guys in the police desk. I worked in the library for three years, so I knew everybody at the Toronto Sun. And and that was also during the worst of the the um, uh, Paul Bernardo uh, and um, Carla Homolka. All that stuff was all going on at the same time, let alone every other crazy thing going on in Toronto at the time. So I, I think you get jaded a little bit, and that's an awful thing in many ways that say that you're jaded. 
but that happens but it's also it's a disconnect right it's like this didn't happen to me my job is to tell the story and it's hard i i it's also why on on slamwrestling.net we've also set up over the years we've had our our map matters or map memories um where we can do more personal things because sometimes it really is personal Right. When Bob Leonard, who we mentioned earlier, died and then Willie the Wolfman died in the same weekend, I was crushed. Both those guys were really great friends of mine. And so you have to write something personal and, I, and that's OK. But I never knew Bob Sweetan personally. I never knew Rebecca personally. I never knew the daughter. So all those things make it easier to have a little bit of distance and a little bit of. I don't know. Yeah, you're 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 your hands out and you're saying, well, this isn't me. These aren't people I directly know. So I can have a little bit more um, distance. I can have a little bit more unbiasedness, I guess, because that's sort of what you're saying. Right. You, you get colored by this awful stuff that goes on there. And how's that any different than, you know, you have that guy on the um, Philadelphia Flyers recently that didn't want to you know, wear the pride sweater for the Flyers. Well, now everybody going in there is going to immediately think of that when they see that guy and they talk to him. And that's an unfortunate reality of how our brains work, right? Is that, you know, you associate somebody with something and it's stuck in there for life. And with Bob Sweetan, yeah, I mean, for all the great wrestling that he did, his legacy is that he molested his daughter and, you know, went to jail and got deported and all these different things. He was not a good person. And which is also why I held the story. That's the other thing I think that probably helps explain some of these things. If I had tried to write about Bob Sweetan while he was alive, it ends up being a little bit of a celebration of his life, even if the bad stuff was in there. But by waiting until he died, um, that I ran that interview that, again, nobody else had, I think it really helped um, clarify and, and keep it all less emotional i guess in a way um it was a tough one to write but it was an important story to write and i had so much like just i i i'm looking at my notes before we talked and man i probably could have written another whole article but there's only so much bob sweetan the world needs now bob sweetan's drug use is something that really comes into play later on in the story and i want to go or I want to read from the SlamWrestling.net article once again. Though hardly exclusive to the individual nature of professional wrestlers, drugs enter the picture. Sweetan was not shy talking about it. Quote, There wasn't anything that I didn't take or do. I enjoyed life to the fullest, said Sweden. I was, it was so easily available, and it was all pharmaceutical. It was nothing made up in somebody's bathtub or cooked up in somebody's effing kitchen. And who knows what the F is in it. It was all pure pharmaceutical stuff. It didn't have that much damage to your body if you did it within reason. Rebecca Carson knows that date all too well. Sweeten had a good career, quote, until he fried his brains on drugs, which is actually one of my most favorite lines from the article. The result is bad decisions. Sweeten disappeared from the lives of his wife and four children on October 15, 1985 and from the world of professional wrestling. Bill Watts was Sweetan's boss at that particular moment, and Carson called him after two weeks of not hearing from her husband. From, a back, from Rebecca, quote, I called Bill and asked where Bob was. He said, well, we don't know, he just didn't show up for work. 
We thought he went home. Days later, she called Grizzly Smith, whom she'd known for more than a decade. I said, Grizz, you need to help me find out what happened to Bob. He was working for Bill. It's your responsibility. You just tell me what you know. He said, well, he was dating this arena rat, and that was the drug dealer. Knowing a little bit more, she called Watts back and learned that her husband had left his paycheck there, so at least she had some short-term money to raise her family. From Rebecca again, quote, We went all through Thanksgiving, Christmas, my birthday, no word. I was halfway torn that someone had done him in because he had left and never missed a day's work in his life, no matter how beat up he was. And he's never left a dollar, so what was I to think? In January 1986, Carson hired a professional investigator to, f- to find Sweeten. The PI succeeded, tracking him down to a rough part of the state near the Texas-Arkansas border. Carson then filed for divorce, and Sweeten did show up at the courthouse with his girlfriend Stacy, where he walked by two of his children, Candace and Chris, without recognizing them. Quote, He came in the courtroom, and then he left the courtroom in a huff because he got nothing, recalled Carson. They left the courtroom and disappeared. That was April 29, 1986. Working 12 hours a day to support her kids, Carson struggled. Sweet Tent disappeared again and wouldn't be seen in Texas again until 1990, when he was brought in on charges for sexually molesting a child. His daughter, Candace. Speaking carefully, Carson said that her daughter revealed the sexual assault about a year after the divorce. Candace was 15 time or 15 at the time when she alleged it. Charges were filed with the Attorney General and a warrant was issued for Sweeten slash Carson's arrest. Eventually, Sweeten was apprehended in Pensacola, Florida and brought back to Texas in January 1990, where he faced felony charge over the sexual assault and a separate charge over non-payment of child support. Six months later, on July 9th, Sweeten pled guilty to the sexual assault. Instead of further jail time, he was part of a new program that required him to stay in touch with authorities, stay away from minors, and continue to pay the child support. We didn't have to go to court, said Rebecca Carson. I was actually able to find the Robert Carson file on the Texas Public Sex Offender Registry. Uh, the SID number was 03066146, and it was a lifetime listing on the sex offender site. Now, one thing that is um, misreported is that his daughter, or is that he had sexually assaulted his daughter when she was 15, but that is not correct. She was 15 when the charges were filed. According to the offense sheet, under statute Texas Penal Code 22.011A-2, uh, the victim's age was 7, and the deposition date was uh, July 16, 1990. And then the judgment was, as quoted in the article, 10 years probation slash community supervision. And the caveat to all of that was that Bob had to check in every time that he was moving at addresses or anything of that nature and greg expands on that later on in our conversation as well i think uh perhaps 
highlight is maybe not the right word to use, but I'm not sure what word to use in this instance. One of the uh, or maybe more memorable parts of, of the interview is is when Rebecca is talking about how uh, how he was deported, he being Sweetan, and and the the druggies are a stupid line. And to me, I can just in my mind, having never met her, I can just picture her demeanor saying a line like that and then explaining the situation. Yeah, and 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 I I like that line too, and it it obviously is something she's probably said to other people. So it's not like it's a unique line in that sense, but it, it certainly encapsulates it all, doesn't it? Capsulates it all. It, it's like, you know, druggies do do stupid things. And that's certainly what happened here. Uh, he allowed himself to get caught because he wasn't thinking clearly. He was thinking more about the next hit or whatever next scam was or whatever it was that he did get caught. And then that was, you know, third strike. He gets sent back to, to Canada. I realize I keep coming back to this aspect of it, and once again, it's because I cannot seem to separate myself from the subject material. And that aspect is, you know, it's one thing to research an individual like Bruiser Bob Sweeten, you know, watch the matches, go through the audio archives, learn about him. It's one thing to do all that. It's quite another thing to present it in a project and then send it out into the world because a small part of me feels feels wrong almost to platform somebody like this the other part of me really understands that if we don't properly contextualize individuals in the well, specifically in this case, the wrestling side of things, the wrestling historical side of things, right? That's when, that's when a lot of this horrible information gets lost. And then all we're left with was Bruiser Bob Sweeten, what a tremendous pile driver, what a great heel. And you never hear the rest of it. And what happens then is Rebecca's story and the girl's story is left out and uh that reason al- or that is reason alone to for me at least to put out this project but i wanted to ask greg you know he does the interview in 2006 he sits in it for 9 years why release this program or why release this article in the first place Greg Oliver again. When you contacted me for this interview to talk about Sweet Tan, I had to go back and revisit a lot of things because I did the interviews in 2006 for the most part. Though, as I said earlier, I do accumulate stuff, right? So maybe somebody else told me something afterwards and you just keep filing things away. But Bob Sweet Tan didn't die until 2017. So I sat on this piece essentially for 11 years. 10 years, whatever it is, give or take. And I mean, I I had no problem with that. I mean, nobody ever was clamoring. Oh, I wish I knew more about Bob Sweetan. I wish we knew more about this. And so I never sort of felt that need to get it out there. Generally, you sort of want a news hook, right? And that's what I talk about with a lot of pieces. I mean, it's as simple as 
somebody starts a, a new YouTube channel or, or a new podcast. Well, there's my news hook to go talk to the honky talk man or whoever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. So you get a little news hook. Well, the news hook for Bob Sutan was always going to be he's dead. So that was an easy one to wait for. Uh, and I can't remember how much I'd had done ahead of time. Um, maybe some, maybe not, but it would also wasn't breaking news. It wasn't Tony Khan announcing that Jay Briscoe's dead at, you know, 650 uh, on a Monday night and off you go. It was very much something different and uh, that you had to, I had the scoop, right? Nobody else had this thing. I had no need to rush with it. I just wanted to get the job done and do it right. And I, I think I did that in the end. But you're right. There's a, a bit of a strangeness to the idea that you wait so long to get something out there that was important. But again, it, it's Bob Sweet Hand. Does it really make or break the world if we didn't have that piece up there, you know, within 20 minutes of him dying? No. I just it's it's interesting now because we are, we're in 2023. So we're, what, six years removed from the article being released, essentially. And, you know, you see a lot of stuff on online, you know, Facebook groups, whatever, et cetera. You know, people are talking about Sweet Ten, what he did in Texas, we did in Florida, Calgary, right? There's there's almost this willingness to overlook what he did in his past in you know to um to talk about you know his wrestling career and i think that that that's the one thing that i think your article does a good job of explaining is like they're not two separate sides of the coin this is this is one person and i think that that's that's an aspect that you know we need to kind of keep our eye on in in this whole kind of age of uh of sports washing certain individuals in professional wrestling not this is not a problem that's specific to pro wrestling but it is a problem that seems to happen as you know we progress further after these people have passed away that's an interesting point for sure and and it happens a lot right you know you you can write about kobe bryant being such an amazing you know basketball player with great ease like that nobody would ever question that but you know when you come down to the the rape trial and the payoff of the woman and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, you got to have that in there. If you don't, you're doing a disservice to um, the true history. And a lot of people will say, well, you shouldn't put that in there. Well, yeah, it, it's part of the story. You can't ignore it. And so with Sweet Tan, uh, it's certainly part of his story, all this awful stuff he did. Now, what I will say, though, is that this story continues to get traffic. And I can't say that about like all the different old timer stories. Um, but in this case, it, it, it does, because when you, you know, Google search Bob Sweetan, well, what's going to come up? That piece. And mm-hmm. and that happens quite often on our site. And we're fortunate that, you know, Google loves us to a degree. And um, you get a little bit of respect from their, their search algorithms. But it is also hopefully people will read it and want to know more about him and why why we treat him the way we did, like why the story is important. And I, and I think it's all in there for somebody to uh, really take away a bigger picture that, yeah, you could, he couldn't entertain us. He could have been a really fun wrestler to watch, but man, in the end, he was a horrible human being.
From 1990 until 2000, Sweetan lived in San Antonio. From Rebecca, quote, He paid all the child support, all the arrears and everything. When you're a convicted child molester, you have to register the rest of your life and you have to register every time you change address. Well, druggies are stupid. He stopped registering in September of 2000. My daughter is a dispatcher with the Pflugerville Police Department, so we still have many more police friends. I had the feeling that he was gone. I could always feel him. I know that sounds stupid, but I felt he was and I proved it. I could always feel him. I said to my daughter, I feel he's gone. I can feel him gone. So I had one of my officer friends in Pflugerville check with the person that handles people that register. They found that he hadn't registered. Instead of being imprisoned in Texas, he was deported back to his home in native land in April of 2001. Bob Sweeten would say, quote, I'm like an elephant. I'm coming home today. The daughter that he had with Stacy played hockey, which was a rarity in San Antonio, so she could play in British Columbia. Sweetan settled in Nanaimo, where his brother Leo lived. On the phone in 2006, Sweetan didn't go into any detail about his family issues, but admitted that he hadn't seen his oldest children in over 20 years. As for the court time, quote, I just got a divorce. That was all. Sweetan did say that his body was falling apart. He was diabetic and didn't get around much. Word is that his condition worsened and that he was confined to Nanaimo, a nursing home with the memory issues, where he died on February 10th, 2017. He was 76 years old. To Sweetan, professional wrestling was a good career choice. Quote, I never really had any regrets because I knew I could not survive in a constrictive environment where you have to do this, you do that, and you don't do anything unless I tell you. No, you don't do this, and no, you don't do that. No. I got into the business because I was an independent contractor, and that's the way it was. His legacy outside the professional wrestling business, however, is something different. He's a waste of skin as far as I'm concerned, stated Rebecca Carson. He fried his brain deserted his children, abused them emotionally, physically, sexually, mentally, whatever. But that's what drugs do. He's fried his brain. He's a fried egg. To say that the Bruiser Bob Sweeten story is complicated, very clearly, is quite the exception. However, I did feel that it was a story that needed to be told, and as difficult as it was to do, I'm happy to have done it, if for no other reason, it gets Rebecca and the kids' story out there, because once again, I feel that that is the most important thing that can come from this story, is that her story of strength and determination gets shared, because I think that while the story doesn't really have any high spots, certainly her coming out as a winner in this whole thing is uh, is definitely one of them. So, that concludes the program today. I'm not going to do my usual plugs. I don't feel that it's appropriate during the course of an episode like this. However, I will say that uh, season three will require your support. So you can go 
on the Linktree link in the show notes of this episode to find ways to support the program. Uh, please make sure that you like, share, subscribe, and rate this program on all major podcasting platforms. Uh, you can email me, sixsidepod at gmail.com. I read everything you send. You can find me on Twitter at six underscore podcast. You can find this program also on YouTube. Uh, just search for Grappling with Canada in the YouTube search bar. I want to thank everybody for having an open mind and uh, tackling this conversation with me. I want to thank uh, Greg Oliver for his tremendous work, not only on this article, but everything that he puts forth at slamwrestling.net. Once again, you can find a link to that article in today's episode show notes. Once again, my name is Andy the Taxman. This has been Grappling with Canada. And until next month, please take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone.